From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is internationally recognized performance poet, activist, organizer, and educator, Mahogany Brown. Mahogany is the executive director of Just Media, a media literacy initiative designed to support the groundwork of criminal justice leaders and community members. Recently, she was appointed as Lincoln Center's first ever poet in residence, wherein she curated monthly virtual and in-person events in a residency entitled We Are the Work an artistic call to recharge and unite towards justice within our communities. An author of several poetry collections, Mahogany is also the founder of Woke Baby Book Fair and has published several children's books too, including Black Girl Magic, which was highlighted on PBS NewsHour. Mahogany is the recipient of several fellowships and awards from Agnes Gund, Air Serenby, Kave Kanem, Poets House, Mellon Research, and Roshberg, to name a few. Earlier this year, Mahogany published the young adult book, Chlorine Sky, which is a personal favorite of mine. And later this month, she will release her latest poetry collection that responds to the impact of mass incarceration on women and children entitled, I Remember Death by Its Proximity to What I Love. Welcome, Mahogany. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. One of the things that I love about your writer's voice is your dedication, your dedication to the craft and performance of poetry, social justice work, reclamation of joy, youth leadership, literacy, and mental wellness. I am, of course, curious in learning more about your journey, the inspiration, the beauty, the power, and the politics of being a Black woman as you show up in the work. I think my audience is too. So are you ready? Ready, 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 ready. Call to adventure. So Mahogany, in spite of living through two simultaneous global pandemics, we have COVID and then of course we have hashtag Black Lives Matter. You've had a great year professionally. 2021, Two books published, Chlorine Sky, which received much acclaim, and now the anticipated poetry collection, I Remember Death. And then the Lincoln Center inaugural poet in residence. You must be floating. How does this all feel? It feels really good. It's a bit overwhelming. You don't realize you've been working on so many things at once until they all hit the stage at the same time. Chlorine Sky, I was working on that back in 2018, 2019. I remember Death by its proximity to what I love. It's a poetry collection by way of an essay collection that I've also been working on since 2019. And the Lincoln Center appointment, that actually came suddenly. So to be able to curate over, you know, 40 poets, artists, singers, dancers, youth groups, community organizers into one space to think about the ways in which poetry can intersect throughout our lives and how we make that a part of our everyday work as humans. It all came at the same time. So now it feels overwhelming. Folks are like, when do you sleep? And I'm 
I think I do sleep, but right now I am a bit tired because you want to make sure you give each of those beautiful endeavors as much stage time, so to speak, as possible. So I'm trying to focus. And now that my residency is done in person, I'm finishing up a poem that will do some virtual work. And I'm working with the orchestra actually this weekend. I'm able to really settle down into this book birth that is I Remember Death by its proximity to what I love, which came out two days ago. That's lovely. And I think in many ways, too, I can imagine where when the floodgates of blessings come through, it's like, yes, I want more. I love it all. And then it's just about managing. But I think what's important is that now that you are easing right into the cadence of everything flowing together, that you do find the time to rest. Defining rest, however it is that you're choosing to define rest, because rest isn't always sleep, but rest can also be restorative in many different ways. Mm-hmm. I love that. It can be resting your mind. It can be resting your hands. Cooking, cooking can be restful for some, not for me. When I cook, it's a tragedy, child. It's a bit stressful for me. However, rest does come in so many forms, and I'm just really excited to find new ways to rest. Absolutely. So as a creative, a performance poet, a curator, social justice organizer, and educator, there are paths we take and processes we engage in to get us to where we are today. So how did you become interested in doing this type of work? I was always a writer, always in love with writing since I think third or fourth grade. Poetry, however, poetry was different. I was introduced to poetry as a junior in high school. And in that class, I was told that the things that I was writing was not poetic. It wasn't valid. And so it took me some time to come back to it, maybe five years. In those five years, I still was devout to reading and writing stories. As a 21-year-old being introduced to poetry again, I think that's where it really sealed the deal. And I haven't stopped writing poetry since. I did stop performing it for a while when I moved to New York City. But it's always been the nucleus to what I do. Writing's really saved me. It saved me from... The effects of mass incarceration, my father being in prison for the majority of my life, it saved me from the depression that is certain to come when you're a child and you're witnessing your parents suffer from an addiction. So writing stories in the word has always been this buoyancy for me, this lifesaver in the middle of the storm. That's powerful. And I think when we are able to also read others' words you can find that there are moments where this other person's expressing the things that you're literally feeling and thinking that sometimes Mm -hmm. the words don't always come easy to us as individuals, but yet speaks to our spirit and speaks to our soul. Mm, I love that. I can see how your love and the ways in which words saved you and continues to save you and also feed you. I can Mm -hmm. see it translate through Just Media, through the Woke Baby Fair, and mm-hmm. and all of the other various performance poetry organizations like the New Yorican Poets Cafe. Your writings and efforts are focused on supporting the voices, stories, and lived experiences of those rendered invisible. And part of your own personal narrative, too, when you're dealing with family members that are incarcerated and its impact on the household and relationships, issues around mental health and addiction. These are populations mm-hmm. that are often rendered invisible as well as part of our own daily discourse. I can see how poetry is a uniquely powerful art form in that way. And 
So if you think back specifically to your childhood, right? So you're born in Oakland, you came of age as a poet there, you came to New York City, you attended Pratt Institute. What or who motivated you to utilize poetry specifically as an organizing platform for social justice and community work? Mm, That's a great question. I'm not certain that there was a moment, an aha moment. There wasn't a light switch. I think performing at group homes for teenage pregnant mothers in 2001, after school programs, as a response to the fear that our young people were experiencing following the devastation of 9-11. I realized in those spaces, poetry has the power to move people differently. It gathers them. It gives them permission to speak for themselves. And it feels like a healing. Now, it's not therapy, but it's the beginning of the understanding. And so it was in 2002 and three that I realized, oh, this is far more powerful than just, you know, the liberation that I felt when I was able to say my poem and a crowd resonate with it. And it was a much different experience than I remembered as a junior in high school. I remember how empowering that felt to just be heard and celebrated. I wanted to offer that to folks as I began leading and facilitating these conversations in these community spaces. But in turn, I realized that it also had the power to ignite a people, to trigger critical conversations that we were afraid to have otherwise. And so from then there on, I decided Regardless of the platform, my work has to be intentional because who I'm speaking to and speaking for, they rarely have the space that I have access to and they rarely have the articulation, right? So how do I be of service to the people? I think that's when it became a part of my everydayness, of my writing process, of where I perform, of who I perform with. There were many places I just said, no, I'm not going to perform there or with this person because I don't believe in the ethics, which is also a statement about community keeping. How do we keep our community safe? We hold each other accountable. If I think abolition is a real thing, then what am I willing to do to make sure that we can get there and restorative justice and transformative justice is what I believe. Obviously, I didn't have the language for that then. (laughs) Those were just kind of in the ethos, but not necessarily named, or at least I didn't know the name. But I was practicing it. And in my practice, I realized I was tethered to the liberation of my people from the beginning. That's beautiful. And I and and that's the thing that I really appreciate your writing, your poetry, in the sense that you are very much in tuned with the spirit and the value around community. And as a creative, I think that we all have a responsibility to be able to use our platform to help support our communities, particularly since historically our communities are often marginalized and disenfranchised. That level of accountability is critical, right? Because sometimes with the fame and the glory, we can get lost. Yeah. And right. And so when you have our community members say, oh, I feel seen and I feel heard. And thank you for saying and naming the things that I've been describing, but I didn't know how it was formally conceptualized. I love that in your work, the way in which you are attuned and in tune with all of that. I think there's something specifically like unique in my opinion when mm-hmm. one as a creative identifies himself professionally as a performance poet, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to what some may think of as a 
air quotes, traditional writer of poetry. What's that pivotal moment that confirmed to you that this was your path? Understanding that identifying as a performance poet, there are some issues and challenges around publishing, right? Than if you were a traditional writer of poetry. So how do you navigate that? And how did you then assert that as part of your formal identity? So I came to... Spaces like Have Canum, which is a space that was designed as a response to the deafening white gaze in the MFA writing programs for Black writers. And it was there, I was there before I even started my master's. I had the understanding of how to take a poem to the stage, but I wanted to have that same staged voice be alive on the page. What I felt about traditional poetry and what I still feel is that there are so many poems that are really well-written, but they have no soul in it. The soul is written out. And I don't know if that was on purpose. I don't don't know. But I knew I didn't want to do that. And if me getting a degree in poetry meant that I would have to lose the voice that reminded me so much of my grandmother in Oakland, California, reminded me so much of my grandfather who is from Louisiana, if it took my voice away from their knowing, I didn't want it. And in this writer space, this fellowship for Black writers, I learned that you did not have to substitute one for the other. And I became very clear in who I was and what I wanted to say, regardless of who wanted to publish me in these well-known journals or in these esteemed presses for publishing poetry. Through that space, I met the legion of literary greats. That includes Pulitzer Prize winner Tahimba Jess and Guggenheim Fellows, Terrence Hayes, icons, Patricia Smith, Toy Derricott, Nikki Finney. All of these are people who we are studying today in school. But you may not have known that before. Their name was maybe in an anthology, but not necessarily the whole book was studied. And I realized then that a lot of that was responding to race, right? What these particular MFA programs and BFA programs were doing, they were constantly cranking out classics. Same old story. They didn't charter into any new territory because of fear or because of boredom, either or. That said, being in that space It was like a light uh, firecracker, like everything went off. And that was it. I couldn't unsee. I couldn't unhear. The crackle and the pop of their words and being changed the trajectory for my writing and for who I wanted to be remembered as when it came to books and publishing. So I still write about the things that I was writing about when I was a performance poet, but I refused to lose the sounds and the music, the jazz riffs that Amir Baraka and Sonia Sanchez taught us. I refuse to lose those things for whatever the traditional canon says is preferred or correct. That wasn't easy because there were a lot of spaces I was not included in, but the steadfast of me just refusing to dilute what I wanted to talk about and how I was speaking, that prevailed. And in turn, I ended up meeting those icons And uh, different doors open. It turns out there are many ways into that one room, right? There's many ways into a house. And so I just walked through a different door. And now I'm excited to be there and bring other folks into those spaces 
whether or not they're a part of the Academy of Letters or they are learning how to read poems at uh, alternative prison program. As long as we are working on the craft of it, I think that's most important. And I owe that kind of thinking, that satisfaction of being me to the space that Cave Canem built. I love what you said and how you talked about the soul. As you were speaking, it reminded me of the first time I read Phenomenal mm-hmm. Woman and the first mm. time Maya Angelou performed it. For me as a reader, you can read that there's a lot of soul because you can kind of pick up on the cadence of how you're supposed to read it, that there's a beat, there's a rhythm, the R&B in it. And then to see her perform and actually say the words and how it even transformed in that moment, it made me even think about the fact that because she herself was also a performer and dancer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. We're able to kind of pick up on the pacing and the cadence and the movement and the soul just in that. And so I love what you talked about in terms of the soul of the work that sometimes when you read certain words, yes, they have meaning. Yes, the messaging can resonate, but sometimes some forms of poetry fall flat. And yes, it doesn't come alive. And I find that a lot of people of color and maybe it's our experiences. Maybe it's just the fact that we love our hot sauce and in, in our lived experiences, <laughs> that hot sauce as a metaphor gets sprinkled in and we pick up on that. And there's just so much flavor and vibrancy, regardless or irrespective of the actual topic at hand. We cannot be boxed in. Our magic Mm -hmm. just overflows. And so we're busting at these seams. And so Mm -hmm. I love what you talked about in the sense of recognizing that you wanted to transcend the box. You want the work to be reflective of the soul and the heart and the mind of the people, not only who you represent, but who I think is also your audience. And so I find it all, it's beautiful. Thank you. I love that you say that because... You cannot recreate the sauce. You can't recreate it. You can't teach it. You either got it or you don't. And we hope you got it. Some of you got sauce. You've just already diluted it. So for you to walk through the world, it's it's less magic and more meh, right? And we're not working with those ideas of homogeny. Swag is what makes it good. Your personality makes the poem. The way you turn. I didn't realize I was performing in Jambit. Because there's all of these definitions, this language that we are not teaching as an everyday accessible thing. We would rather make it seem as if it's too far ahead of our comprehension and that maybe we're not worthy. That's the reason I'm in these spaces with with these young people or, you know, burgeoning poets and just reminding them, oh, you already speak in metaphor. You know rap lyrics. You're already you're already poeting. I promise you the language is ours. We do not have to be afraid of who we are beside that language because that language is not even ours in the first place. So us owning the language of our own blood and our own selves, it can be a part of the narrative too. And it it must be if we're to be successful and truly whole. Be what you want to see. Act two, The Road. Mahogany. So you said a little earlier that you don't really know how to burn in the kitchen. So, so how does mahogany then play? I like coffee. I know how to make a really mean coffee. I'm really good at that. (laughs) 
I have like five or six things that I know how to make no matter what. I know how to make gumbo, turkey chili from scratch, my grandmother's recipe. I can do a roasted chicken. There's things I can make. It's just after a week, I'm like, all right, leftovers. I don't have the capacity to like, oh, this flavor palette will go with this. I can't do that. And I think people who do that are geniuses. So I watch a lot of Chef's Table, a lot of Chopped. <laughs> I watch a lot of Top Chef. I'm always enamored. I'm like, how did they think of that? And then I'll order Chinese or something. But <laughs> when I'm really burning, I think it's when I'm thinking of ways to collaborate. I love collaboration. I feel like I'm a communal artist first. Mm. What do I think about this art in comparison to what's happening in the world? And then how does my art respond to that? And that makes a new piece of art. I'm always interested in collaborations. I think that's where I burn the best. It's when I'm working with other artists. And I think it makes sense, particularly how you've treated the Lincoln Center poet in residency, right? In that Mm. even by the title of the residency, We Are the Work, that communal collaboration really comes through. And it goes in line with your own politics around community building and just the fact that you're in a space that hasn't always been inclusive in the way that it should be. And you being in these spaces can represent two young creatives coming up to say that is a possibility because We've been in those spaces. I love that spirit of collaboration as it being your play space, as well as your workspace, as well as your community space. I love it too. I mean, I thought Lincoln Center has this reputation, but that's not what I met when I got there. And so that was a pleasant surprise to really have the lay of the land in front of me to not have to squirm and be afraid of talking about budget to not have to dial back my ideas because it was too big or too black or too brash. So I was really pleasantly surprised with the leadership and the guidance that Jordana Lee and Kat Henry extended. When I came to them, I literally came to them with everything. I was looking at all different aspects of poetry in the body and the mind and the soul. I wanted reading to happen. So we had our Woke Baby Book Fair. I wanted movement to happen. So we had sound bowl meditation. I wanted people to learn how to have discourse around difficult topics. So we had an open air classroom that was free. And then, of course, we had performances and live DJs and youth poets. So the intergenerational conversation was consistently there. I'm used to having to tell people, like, walk them along. No, this is why we're doing it. No, this is what we're doing. And I had to do none of that. Not once. This is my plan. And they said, "Okay, how can we help? What do you need us to do? Set up the stage, got it. (laughs) Confirm the music, got it. I had to do nothing but dream. And then I had a team that executed. It was a dream come true. I'm still like, you know, pinching myself. Whether you are challenging the conditioning of Black girlhood with a powerfully uplifting and beautiful anthem like in Black Girl Magic or in poems like Red Bone Dance that really carries that soul, that melody of love and creation and being, or even in the poem, Inevitable, that marks Mm -hmm. that moment Mm -hmm. a parent contemplates the dissipation of childhood innocence and the Mm -hmm. burgeoning of adolescence. And trust me, I I know this firsthand because I have a soon to be 15 year old daughter. Uh, Yes, and bless the household. (laughs) (laughs) Your themes and topics provoke the audience to consider love and godlike love. So Mm. as a Black woman, 
What does it mean to love and be loved? And what are your sources of inspiration? So in other words, how have these evolved in relationship to how you think about and understand love? My sources of inspiration, I think, will forever be the women in my family, the matriarchs. I learned love through them and because of them. And I am raising my daughter, who is now 23, shout out to her, with that same tender wonder. I don't act like I have all the answers, at least I try not to. (laughs) She might disagree. But because of her, I'm also learning through her, you know, her experiences as she moves through the world. But the matriarchs in my family really have been the touchstone for me to understand what to do and what not to do. My mother experienced a domestic abusive relationship with my father, and I learned resilience. I also learned that you don't have to stand for these things, right? You don't have to accept these things. I think that it saved me from whatever this desire is. And I don't know if I can say it's a gendered desire, but the desire to fix other people and put myself in harm's way to do so, I don't have that because of you know what I witnessed with her. And that's what Redbone comes from, me really interrogating how I came to understand love through this tumultuous relationship that resulted in my birth. Inspiration now comes from real life <laughs> conversations about the things that hurt and allow myself to be vulnerable, allow myself to find friendships in spaces I've never considered. I used to only befriend people in the poetry community because that was my 24-7. That's all I did. I hosted a space at a cafe in the city for 13 years. I toured for 18 years. I taught for 15 years. And all of, poetry was the nucleus of that. So all of my friendships, there had to be something that touched one of those worlds because I really didn't have time for anything else. And that wasn't the best thing, I think, for me, because you have a lot of people who are still finding themselves in healing, but also it's a workspace. A bit of it can be hierarchical, where people think that, oh, you're the boss and you're on, so I'll be kind today. But there really isn't any investment in you as a person, only investment in you as a resource. So I had to start having those rough and difficult conversations with myself. What does friendship look like? What does love look like? Love cannot just be how I show up for someone with a gift, love has to look like, how am I showing up for someone as a person? And how am I showing up for myself? You know, what am I allowing to continuously happen under the guise of friendship, under the guise of love? So I think it's every day. I'm constantly learning and stretching and growing. I think every seven years, I go through some kind of shedding where I'm like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I keep coming back to the same hiccup And there keeps being this pain, this pain in my heart. I want to move through this life, this one life that I have with as much love and tenderness and kindness that I can muster because I've experienced enough hardship and ache and sorrow. Of course, we're not done. Look at the government, right? So if I can do anything, let me curate a beautiful space with my closest friends. Absolutely. And I think it's really important for all of us to really have compassion, not just for other people, but compassion for ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And recognize that there is power even in our vulnerabilities. And so I appreciate you even recognizing places that 
You know, for sure, sometimes our pain does inspire some of our greatest creations, right? Mm. By doing so, we're rendered vulnerable as a result. But then there's love in that because Mm -hmm. it helps us kind of push through and process and heal. And in the process, we're helping others to heal. I can appreciate what you've talked about in terms of looking to the lessons that others and their lives have provided to us. Because we don't always have to go through the things ourselves as the I. That's right? right. To have these things and experiences serve as inspiration. But I love how you draw on that and how that helps to inform even how you show care and love to your daughter, to others in your community. I also appreciate the fact that you talked about these different spaces and having to navigate these different spaces and recognize that you can have a communal professional love and admiration. I think that when we kind of live in this very hyper-capitalist society, it's always the quid pro quo. What can you do for me? And then I do for you and the scratching of each other's backs. But, you know, it's like, well, why can't it just be interdependence in that regard. Why does it have to be, I do for you, do for me? And I think the Black Girl Magic poem in particular, it's an anthem to remind young people especially, but even some of the older people like, look, you possess this magic and all of that and how you show up in these spaces and love, love yourself because oftentimes we are the entities not loved. When you're used to being on that side of the spectrum, you're always working from a space of scarcity, right? Or you're always working from a space of fear (laughs) where like, well, obviously I don't deserve to be loved because I've never received love. And when you do receive a genuine love, it's scary because you're like, wait, what? This is it? No. Where's a small fine print? Like I need to know what's going to come after this. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm constantly having to forgive myself for being that kind of skeptic and to allow myself to reimagine vulnerability as just being vulnerable and not weak. Mm. Like you got to rename it. And I think also when I think about love, I have to, even as a woman, as an individual, as a person, just understand that the reality of how I give and receive love Mm -hmm. is different from someone else Mm -hmm. in whatever that relationship is. Having to learn how to be explicit on, well, This is how I receive love. And this is what I require, what I need and what I want. And understanding that sometimes people can't give that to you. And that's okay because that's not your problem. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think that's part of understanding to love and be loved. Understanding that everyone comes to love very differently. And sometimes you have to have compassion for folks that can't give you love in the way that you're able to receive it. And it goes the other way as well, that sometimes you're giving love in a way that it's not received well or is received very well. But it's just this interesting awareness about love. At the end of the day, it's a powerful thing. It's so powerful and it's so transformative. It's evolving. It has no limits. What I adore about it, right, is that we all have the capacity to receive and to give. Absolutely. What are the lessons you've learned thus far that you hope to communicate to your audiences in your work? I'm always interested in reclaiming space. First, as a young person being told it's better to be seen and not heard. I'm sure you remember that one. 
but then also as a black woman to push back against people's ideas of me speaking up means I'm angry. <laughs> oh, you're too strong or you're too abrasive. And how to not let those things define you. You define yourself. People don't get to define who you are to yourself. And so reclaiming who you are, reclaiming your joy, being able to wear different color hair wigs and that not being deemed inappropriate, being able to wear an Afro and then not being deemed inappropriate, being able to have long fingernails or gold fronts, like whatever it is that is a part of your you, you know, there isn't any one way to show up in a space as a black femme body. I think that's the one thing that I want people to walk away with. You do not get to dictate a woman's body, voice, or tone. You don't get to do that. She gets to do that for herself. The sooner you get there, the further we can get with making art <laughs> and making love and making communities and making the revolution really happen. But if you're constantly trying to police the person who's been the most mistreated, then we're going to have a problem because that feels like a dog pile, right? It feels like, oh, this is the easiest. We'll take the aggression out on this person because everybody makes jokes on this person. I'm not really accountable to how I'm making this person feel because this is the easiest punch to throw down. So what happens when a Black woman's joy is no longer a joke? What happens when a Black woman's likeness is no longer the pun of a joke? What happens when her love for herself is reflected in the community that she's been serving all along. Get it, get it. Act three, where we land. So we've come to the end of our podcast episode. Before we part, I'd love for you to share with the audience your latest project. Where can mm-hmm. people find you? your social media handles, all of those good things. Well, my name is Mahogany L. Brown. You can find me at Mo Brown, M-O-B-R-O-W-N-E.com. I'm Mo Brown on every social media platform, including Twitter, Insta. Facebook is Mahogany L. Brown with an E at the end of Brown. And my TikTok, oh my goodness, I tried to make a TikTok, y'all. Don't blame me. But it's there, Mahogany L. Brown. <laughs> the book, I Remember Death by its Proximity to What I Love, is available at all stores, including Strand. They have personalized copies, as well as Greenlight Bookstore, which also has personalized copies, and they ship around the world. Any upcoming performances, anything that people can see or participate or partake in? Urban Word NYC, where I am artistic director, it is the home for young poets in the world. It is the home that built the National Youth Poet Laureate series. So when you saw Amanda Gorman, you saw the blood, sweat, and tears of Urban Word NYC. I don't have any virtual things coming up just yet. I'm taking a beat. But if you're following me on any of those networks, I definitely update my Twitter and my Insta. Thank you so much, Mahogany L. Brown, for being with us here on Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. I appreciate you and I love you, your work and your gift. So thank you. Thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation and your light, it touches everything. So I'm so happy to bear witness. There you have it. 
The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace. As we proceed to give you what you need. We are all on our own journeys. And sometimes these journeys take us to different parts of the globe. If you're interested in learning more about black and brown people's experiences living across the globe or are contemplating embarking upon your own journey to live in another country, then you should check out the podcast, The Global Chatter, hosted by the black expat founder, Amanda Beats. Each week, Amanda and her guests talk international mobility, identity, race, career, and more. The Global Chatter is available wherever you listen to podcasts.